John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be discussing Blumhouse's new Halloween sequel rebooty thing that they did this weekend. Uh, the adaptation of the best-selling novel, The Hate You Give, as well as the first-ever English-language film for French director Jacques Odiab, uh, The Sisters Brothers, plus a Netflix and chat on The Seven Deadly Sins anime, Season 3. That's gonna be fun. Let's get started. There's a reason we're supposed to be afraid of this night. I've been preparing for this for a long time. It is not safe to be on the street tonight. Go home! Get out of here! Get inside! Michael! He's here. He is a killer. But he will be killed tonight. Happy Halloween, Michael. Now, I'll admit, I'm not the biggest fan of the Halloween franchise. Not that I hate it or anything, just that it didn't interest me. I did do that uh, that meme that was going around Twitter recently about the uh, movie The Day You Were Born, the hot number one movie at the box office, take the tagline, and that's your... That's basically, you know, your horoscope, essentially. And mine was Michael Myers, uh, The Return of Michael Myers, uh, Halloween 4. And so I guess... <laughs> It's funny to think that that was the number one movie the day I was born, uh, October 17th, 1988. So, so I, there's a connection to the Halloween franchise I never knew. Um, at any rate, I, di- I will say the, number, uh, the first movie, the John Carpenter original, is a classic. And there's no denying that. In fact, it's going to be featured on next week's episode in our Halloween Spooptacular, uh, which I'm hoping to bring back. And, yeah, so I I'm not familiar with the sequels. I can't speak to their quality overall. And the fact that Blumhouse is essentially doing a soft reboot, doing what, um, I believe it was Halloween Resurrection did first, uh, with trying to cut out all the excess crap and do a soft reboot and do a direct sequel to the original. That's not a bad idea. Try to start, you know, do do a quick reboot, start over. It's kind of like when Star uh, Disney cut out the Star Wars extended universe, just so they could focus more on the new their own ideas. And for what it's worth, the movie is pretty good. Uh, it's it's by uh, of all people, Danny McBride and David Gordon Green, who have worked together three times so far in Pineapple Express. In his show Eastbound and Down, and in his other show Vice Principals, I have no idea if he's involved in the one coming up about um, with John Goodman as like some Billy. I forget what what, what that uh, um, show's about, but ba- yeah, some he's in. Danny McBride's got a new show coming out that I, I think looks great. Um, no idea uh, David Gordon Green's involved in that either, but yeah. <laughs> um, Suffice to say that uh, these guys are known mainly for comedy. I mean, David Gordon Green has diverged into more drama, but he's never done flat-out horror. And I don't think Danny McBride has much either, at least as a writer. 
I don't. I can't speak to him as an actor. I have never seen his entire uh, filmography. But the fact that they're the ones who are not only big fans of the Carpenter original, but were basically chosen to spearhead the the sequel rebooty thing that Blumhouse wanted to do, is very interesting. It's an interesting choice, and I think it worked out. Uh, you will notice uh, comparatively a bigger. Um, influence of comedy like the comedic timing and the tension release is very much more in line with McBride and Gordon Green's style you know like they're when the the jokes that hit feel like you little kind you would see in one of those one of Dan McBride's comedies so be aware of that it's not a flat-out comedy but the comedic the comedic timing and the jokes used to break the tension are very much in line with their style. Uh, the story here is we've cut out everything besides Halloween, um, the original, 1978. And Michael Myers has been imprisoned in an insane asylum uh, for the last 40 years. And he is set to go into a, I believe, max security prison. And during his transfer, he manages to escape and he begins to once again terrorize the town of Haddonfield on Halloween night. And specifically on the ser- in search of Laurie Strode, who put him away, who, who was his one victim the last time to get away. And so it's, it's about how mainly Laurie Strode in the last 40 years has become a prepper. She has made traps and she is trained with guns. And that was a whole thing, actually. Conservative news media has been trying to paint the fact that uh, Curtis herself is a gun control advocate, yet her character is a prepper, as though these people don't understand how acting works. Because, yeah, Curtis doesn't have to hold the same beliefs as her character. That's how acting works. What what do you think, um, what was her name, uh, Margaret, well, oh, I can't remember her name from, uh, Wizard of Oz, the Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, you know, Frank Morgan, Margaret Hamilton. You think Margaret Hamilton wanted to kill little dogs and girls? No, these are actors. They're playing a role. It, it's part of it's, it's what the it's what actors do. Um, so yeah, the idea that they're trying to like see she's a hypocrite. She's using guns in her movie. But she does... Yeah, that's that's what actors do. It's part of her character. She Her character is... She doesn't have to agree with her character. It's a role, and the and the role serves a purpose. Plus, it's not even like Laurie Strode's on the right. They, Laurie Strode is, ob, is definitely played off as somebody who has been damaged by what has, effect, what has happened to her. She's become... She's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder that has alienated her from her family, and... And they even hint the fact at the fact that she tried to receive help, but didn't. You know, it didn't take. Did she, she didn't uh, take it seriously? She is more focused on preparing for the next time Michael Myers or a similar killer tries to come after her family. And yeah, the whole point is that Laurie Strode is badass and trying to take down Michael Myers. But the whole point is also that she, in doing so, she alienated herself from her family. And it took the fact that Michael Myers did escape for her to re- to re- to kind of re- to patch up 
uh, her family, you know, the, the tears that have, that had occurred in her family, but, you know, between her and her daughter, played by Judy Greer, and her granddaughter, and and even then, it's not perfect. I, if they continue down the storyline, I doubt that she has this whole thing has been fixed. That's how trauma works. It is a it is a constant struggle to overcome the pain that you have endured. And that's kind of the point of the story. Her being a prepper may have helped her, helped her fend off Michael Myers, but it's not but it's not a good trait for her. It's not a it didn't help her with her family. It didn't help her like it helped her it didn't even help her survive. It it just kind of drove everyone away from her. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of to tackle that nonsense that people are trying to turn into controversy. It's a non-troversy, as people like to say. Uh, aside from that, there, there's some interesting, uh, aspects that they pull in. The fact that, uh, number one, that there's a, the, there's a recurring character, there's these re- characters that, um, uh, follow Michael and Laurie Strode for a bit, uh, that are basically... Serial. It's a fictionalized version of the podcast Serial or the Netflix series Making a Murderer. The idea is here are these journalists who are trying to make a popular podcast in order to, and doing so by interviewing the people surrounding the Michael Myers case, including trying to get some in, some input from Michael himself. And all they tend to do is stir up trouble, ultimately, by kind of essentially triggering. Michael, because there's a, like the opening scene is them confronting Michael with his uh, mask, and it's essentially and like the whole scene builds up to this ten, to this really tense ending point, and it's all, the idea is that you're not quite sure what's going on, it, it, only that Michael is obviously bothered by what they're doing, and maybe if they hadn't interfered things wouldn't have gone bad. Maybe things wouldn't have, maybe things would have been fine, except they had to go sticking their noses around trying to uncover something that didn't, that didn't exist, you know? Like, you do, oh, what about the real Michael? Let's, we have to uncover what drove him to kill his sister and those babysitters 40 years ago, and I think, like, 45 years ago, respectively. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I forget what the timeline is for the original movie. But yeah, what drove him to go? What drove him to kill those young girls? Um, he could just have some sort of undiagnosed mental disorder. There are plenty of people who do suffer from those kinds of things. It, you know, it, it also doesn't help that he's stuck in a facility that feels like it's out of a movie. Specifically, that it, you know, mainly it, like the whole thing that's like they're chained into to weights. In a courtyard, and it's it's so bizarre. Like I will say this: the 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 worst aspect of this movie are the reliance on tired tropes and cliches and plot holes. The whole thing of like, oh, he's in this mental asylum, but it doesn't feel like an actual mental asylum. It feels like something they tried to pull in, like a Silence of the Lambs movie, or you know, like it's, it's like it's like the kind of asylum that you would expect to find Hannibal Lecter in. Um, and it, it, it's kind of silly looking when you think about it. And then the whole portrayal of people who are, um, not, not mentally well isn't exactly stellar. Um, it's not, I don't think it's wholly offensive. Uh, you know, like with Splice, my biggest problem with Splice is it, until the, until the big twist, it, it, it wanted us to take him 
seriously as somebody with dissociative identity disorder and it completely doesn't understand how that works at all. And so that's what, and it's, and so it's offensive from a mental health standpoint because it's trying for the, for until the big twist, it's, tr- it, it's assumedly trying to have you take this seriously as somebody with DID and it doesn't understand how DID works and it's all offensive stereotypes through and through. And I have no, I, I, I have no doubt that unfortunately that's co- probably going to continue in glass next year. Oy be, oy be, oy be, uh, have a, have a cold in the egg has my bees. Um, don't know where that came from. Suffice to say that the mental health, yeah, the mental health in this movie isn't exactly stellar. It's very tropey. As is the whole teenage, you know, the whole things like teenagers are like, hello? Like, even the first couple of kills that Michael has are people like, want, like, the kid calls the cops, but he leaves the phone in the car to go searching for his dad, and he continually does the, hello? Hello, dad? Dad, are you there? Dad, I can't see you. Hello? Yeah, it it suffers a lot from that. And I feel like... Part of me wants to assume that because they're such fans of the original and probably some of the sequels, that that's just a trope that they carried over. And part of me wants to assume that it's probably Blumhouse has no qualms with reiterating tired horror tropes and cliches in their movies. Like, most of their stuff hinges on some of the worst aspects of, of, of campy horror. And it's, you know, part of the stuff that I, I don't personally enjoy, like... You stuff that like some people love Happy Death Day. I couldn't stand that movie. I thought it was such a tired and worn out horror slasher. Uh, it was essentially like every movie that uh, what's his name? Uh, I think Matthew Lillard's character. No, um, Jamie Jamie Kennedy's character from Scream what, what, quoted and talked about in. Uh, in in that movie you know these are the things you have to understand when when you're in a horror movie like when west when west craven west anderson when west craven was making fun of these tropes 20 years ago the fact that we're still relying on them is kind of sad you'd think we'd be able to do better um but i will say aside from some of the lazier tropes and plot holes this is a i mean this is a really good horror movie this has great, ten, great sound. They brought John Carpenter back to do the soundtrack, and he's got a, a nice mix of the seventies, like do 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 then you know that piano melody, and then he mixes it in with the eighties synth, like from the sequel. So it's like a nice retro, but still like you know almost timeless theme going on with Michael, and the kills are phenomenal. Like, it doesn't get overly gory, but it's nice, like, nice, like, effective kills. And, you know, while they may, while they may kind of break suspension of disbelief in order to happen, when they do happen, they're excellent. And the final showdown between uh, Michael and Laurie is a great send-up of the original movie, too. It's, and plus the, plus the stuff that they've been building up to with Laurie being a prepper. And... I, you know, I'll even say Judy Greer uh, has been... I like seeing her and stuff. She is 
I very underappreciated the actress. I think she's hilarious when she's when given the right role, and I think she's able to handle herself in a more traditional blockbustery sort of uh, role as well. Like, what was before this? What was the last movie I saw her in before Halloween? I know she's one of the apes in uh, the Planet of the Apes series. Um, oh yeah, she's uh, Scott Lang's uh, ex-wife in Ant Man. And she's and she's fun in that. She's you know it's a great comedic role for her. And apparently she's on uh, the latest. Se- apparently she returned in Arrested Development season five. Um, not familiar with any of these adventures in public school. Yeah, I don't know any of this stuff. But yeah, War for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, she's great. So she's great in um, motion capture stuff. Great voice actress. Storybots. She's been a part of, and of course Archer. Yeah, so, I mean, like, Judy Greer is very underrated. Like, most people might recognize her even from Jurassic World, where she's the kid's mom, Bryce Dallas Howard's uh, sister. And she really is a very underrated actress. I think she's capable of so much, and it's just that people kind of see her, never really pay much attention. Like, you know, she's one of those great character actresses. And... Well, she's not given a whole lot to do in this movie. What she is given to do, she handles great. And even the um, the girl playing her daughter, um, interesting name. I didn't. I can't think. Uh, Andy Matichek, uh plays the her plays Judy Greer's daughter, Allison, who is probably best known as Meadow from Orange Is the New Black. And she is a solid scream queen. She is able to do the screaming parts that uh, Curtis did in the original, and is able to hold her own as well. And you know, like like Lori was, uh, you know, targeted by Michael's uh, uh, um, Andy's character. Allison is de- is also kind of like the victim of of a, of unwanted sexual assault, and even targeted by Michael himself. And she's able to hold her own for the most part, and and she does and she does a good job. I'm interested to see where how she follows this up. So I guess I would say overall, Halloween 2018 was a great showing for the franchise, and despite its foibles, shows that Blumhouse is able to handle these classic slashers. Danny McBride said he's not, he doesn't have an idea set for the sequel yet. I'm assuming probably he'll probably take a year off or so to get get some ideas going through his head of if he, how he wants to continue it. But I'm assuming this did really well, I think. Because, I mean, I went to see this in my local one-screen theater, The Highland in Akron. And it was it was pretty well attended. Now, like, for a 7 o'clock showing on a Friday night, it, was, it wasn't packed. But it was definitely well attended. And... I'm assuming that the other theaters in my area were probably packed to, with uh, people wanting to see this movie. So I have no doubt that this is probably going to be the top of the box office this weekend. And, if, and with that being successful, I'm curious to see if Blumhouse will acquire any of the other old slasher movies. Texas Chainsaw, Chucky, you know, the classics like uh, Friday the 13th, The Nightmare on Elm Street, Hellraiser. Like, what What other classic horror franchise will Blumhouse pick up and improve upon and bring back and revitalize? Because they've really revitalized this franchise. I mean, they kind of 
do a disservice to all the sequels that came before, but it's not like this wasn't done before. Halloween Resurrection completely cut out all the excess sequels, and Season of the Witch is completely disregarded. Hell, Blumhouse might remake Season of the Witch as its own entity. Who knows? Uh, but I, you know, I think if they are able to handle these classic horror franchises, it'd be interesting to see if they become like the next Platinum Dunes, where they take these franchises and get and make something out of them and try to do reboots that actually work this time instead of completely miss the point. We'll see. Uh, but I wouldn't be interested in that. And then, and then of course, obviously, you'll lead up to an Avengers-style crossover where the th- slashers are killing everybody and then try to kill each other. Because, of course, that's what, that's what, that's what we do now. That's what everybody does. I mean, wasn't that the whole point of, of this sort of thing? To just build up to an Avengers-style crossover movie? Because, obviously, that's what everyone wants to do in Hollywood now. That's the new trilogy. Anyway, sorry. I got off on a tangent. Uh, but, yeah, Halloween 2018. Solid movie. If you're a fan of horror, and especially if you're a fan of the franchise, I think you'll dig it. Today, Garden Heights is reeling after the shooting of a 17-year-old black teenager by a white police officer. Violence. Brutality. We live in a complicated world. It doesn't seem that complicated to me. It's about more than just color. It's about black people, poor people, everybody at the bottom. I need to speak for him. When you're ready to talk, you talk. Don't ever let nobody make you be quiet. I ain't named you star by accident. Oh boy, am I not qualified to talk about this one. So yeah, I was actually looking forward to this, and it did not disappoint. It didn't disappoint me in the slightest. It's just, man, the subject matter is way out of my wheelhouse. I am not qualified to talk about any of the subject matter in this entire movie. So nice to say that I will, that I do support its existence, and I do think these kinds of stories need to be told. So what I'm talking about is The Hate You Give, based on the novel by Angie Thomas. And it's, it's title for those who aren't familiar, because I didn't realize this at all. I'm not as, as, not as versed in uh, Tupac as I probably should be, because, I mean, the, the, guy's, the, guy's, you know, the guy's amazing. And he, he, he was almost like, you know, he's, he was pretty much like a, a poet, for the you know for out of, of all, out of everybody from the '90s gangsta scene, uh, the most poetic was probably Tupac. I, I think I, I think that goes without question. And his whole thing, and the, the title comes from his abbreviate his acronym based on his tattoo Thug Life. And he abbreviated, he basically broke it down each letter, meaning the hate you give little infants f's everybody. You know, fornicates everybody. I can't say the word without losing my clean rating, but you know what I mean. Um, and the idea behind that is the anger and violence and vitriol that you that you perpetrate and that you showcase in front of little children. That's what they see. That's what they envelop, and that's what they become in their later life. So the you so the whole point of Thug Life for Tupac was to break the cycle of violence, and that's the impetus of this movie. That's and the book I'm assuming, um, with 
the story being about um, Star Carter, who is played by Amanda Stenberg. And Star is a girl who lives in Garden Heights, who is, which is a very much Compton-inspired, Compton-Oakland sort of lower, you know, lower uh, class level, uh, very black-centric, um, urban, you know, urban neighborhood. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's very much not specifically based on, it's an amalgamation of all of those kinds of neighborhoods. And she lives in that neighborhood because that's where her family grew up and that's where her dad's store is and that's where her her dad wishes to stay because that's his home. He sees that neighborhood as his home. And meanwhile, her mom, played by Regina Hall, uh, dad played by Russell Hornsby, um, her mom wants to be, wants Star and her kids to have the same, you know, experience she did, which was getting out of Garden Heights and to do that, she goes to school in the ritzier, upper-class, very well-to-do white neighborhood. Predominantly white. There's def- like Star has an Asian friend in the movie, but it's very much predominantly white. And especially very upper-class. And it's Star de- initially dealing with code switching, which, um, you know, more, you know, more people, in, you know, of minority groups, because it's not just a black thing. It's definitely a, it's definitely a minority thing, though. When you're trying to advance yourself in a corporate career, and especially a predominantly white culture, you do, you know, there are people who do so by code switching, acting naturally their own way, like they're, you know, being part of them, their their own culture, away when they're part when they're, you know, home with their friends, with their family, and then when they're at work or when they're at school, when they're away from that culture, they switch to be more white, be more um, business-friendly, be more uh, corporate-friendly, corporatized. You know, essentially be less... be less whatever. And that's, you know, and I... It's a predominantly black thing, because that's the culture that has to do it has talked about it the most. In fact, uh, I brought it up in uh, Sorry to Bother You. That dealt mainly with code switching. And Star has to do that initially while she's going to school. So her kid, her friends at school see her as this more milk toast, like, uh, average girl. And meanwhile, when she's at home in Garden Heights, she's, she's unfortunately seen as the milk toast average girl because she goes to the white school. And but but it's at home and but it's when she's at in Garden Heights that she feels more at home. That's when she feels around her people. I mean, this is all explained in the trailer better. But one night uh, she's at a friend's party in Garden Heights, and she meets up with a with an old friend of hers from her childhood before uh, she started going to the wealthy school. Played by um, I got his name right here. Uh, Algie Smith, who is uh, previously in Detroit, another movie where he got uh, brutalized by the police. Uh, here he is, basically uh, a high school kid who gets uh, pulled over by the cop, and be- and the cop shoots him, thinking a hairbrush was a weapon. You know, he basically pinned the kid as a criminal and as a thug, and was willing to. You know, he believed, he believed his life was a threat. All of the same stuff we hear about every police shooting that comes out. And 
after that is when it starts to snowball into everything that's been going on in the black community lately, namely police brutality, the lack of accountability of the cops in quest that, that commit these atrocities, and what yo know, and the and how important is it to maintain a sort that sort that co- that code switching switching for star and how much more important is it to speak out and you know become a voice for your community and while that's going on she when she does begin to speak out she unfortunately invites the ire of the local gang lord played by uh uh Anthony Mackie in a weird turn for him it's not he's not exactly best suited for uh the role of a a drug lord and kingpin (laughs) but i mean he's threatening and imposing for the most part i mean like i wouldn't i wouldn't mess with him so i don't know if i don't know if i wouldn't have gone with somebody else but at the same time like anthony mackie's not a bad choice either so um anthony mackie and his uh and his other uh gang members are are threatening specifically Star, but also targeting her other family members, including her father, who was an ex-gang member for him. So he's doing all of that to try and incite violence in them, threaten them, and tell them to not, in order to keep her from snitching to the cops. And all that's going, as that's going on, the tension continues to build between the Garden Heights community and the Black and the black members of that community and the police when it's when it when it concerns whether or not the cop will be indicted by the grand jury and whether or not you know justice will be seen for the kid who got shot and it all centers on star's point of view as the kid's friend and even love interest for a bit like they're like they have that long-standing relate relationship and they even had feelings for each other but unfortunately, and unfortunately, if things hadn't turned out the way they did, who knows what would have happened. But, yeah, it, and it's, so it's her dealing with the fact that there's not only a long-standing friendship, but somebody that she deeply cared about, may have, maybe even romantically, and he was taken away from her in an instant. And her coming to terms with that and also trying to envelop the mentality that Tupac presents in his acronym thug life that to to break the cycle of violence because that's the whole thing the movie opens with uh russell hornsby telling the younger versions of his kids the basically the mantra of the black panther party and the whole and telling them here's what you do when a cop pulls you over because he doesn't want to see what his kids uh die at the hands of the police so he's telling them exactly what they it's it's essentially the uh, a black family's version of the talk, sadly enough. And once again, I'm an outsider. I cannot speak to this. I'm only speaking to this as somebody who has heard um, other uh, black movie critics and black um, and black enter- and, and black entertainment sort of followers and reviewers speak on it. So don't once again don't take what I'm saying to heart. I would recommend you listen to other people. I know. Um, uh, Corey and Martin talk about it on Double Toasted, but you can also find other, um, I think LaRon probably is going to cover this at some point, LaRon Redis over on Redis 101. It, you know, find people within the community to, op- to have a better viewpoint on this from their perspective as members of that community, which I'll get to more during the discussion. But yeah, it's, the themes of this movie, I have no authority to speak on. I only bring them up because 
I find them compelling. And and it's part of the reason why I love this movie. Because I'm given this perspective that I can't get personally. I cannot experience these in my, in my own life because I'm white. And so in order to understand, that's the great thing about art. You're able to present your emotions, your thoughts, your life in, in a way that other people can see it, can feel it. And if you'd have to be an unempathetic, soulless husk of a person to not see everything that Star goes through and not to feel the pain that she endures and every as everything around her crumbles at all you know her life is is fall, falls apart in front of her every as every day progresses you know her her relationship with her white boyfriend uh from school played by KJ Apa uh Archie in Riverdale uh is is at risk because she her persona at school is starting to unravel because she is she doesn't feel comfortable code switching anymore. She doesn't want to present herself as this other star. She wants to be herself for a change. And there's also the fact that her her own personal life is unraveling because not only did she, is she dealing with the trauma of losing her friend in, and seeing him die in front of her and essentially holding her in her arms despite the fact that her arms were held behind her back uh, in handcuffs. But basically... The equivalent, you know, the closest thing to having her him die in her arms, dealing with that, not to mention the fact that there's also the imposing gang, viol gang violence threatening her and her family if she dares speak out against them. It's, it's all, and it's all just, you feel the weight on her shoulders and the fact that the most important thing to do is to always break the cycle of violence. That is the ultimate takeaway. And that's the nice thing, is that a lot of times you see this in, especially during the 90s, like Do the Right Thing and uh, Boys in the Hood, all of those kind of, all of that black cinema from the late 80s and the early 90s had a definite more realistic take. The whole fact that it's not nice. It's not tied up in a bow. And things don't end nicely. Some things you can't help but end tragically. Whereas here... It's a lot more optimistic. And I'm guessing that, can, that that also comes from the book. The fact that, yeah, things are rough. Yeah, things are hard. Yeah, it's always a constant struggle. But the best thing to do is to hold that mantra to, true and to break through the cycles of poverty and the cycles of violence that are continually affecting the black community. And once again, I'm speaking to this as an outsider. But... I see those themes being presented to me and I'm reporting them to you, the listener. That's all I'm saying. And I, I would, once again, I can't recommend anybody personally. I'm not as uh, versed, well-versed in uh, black critics and black um, uh, speakers uh, on this matter. But I would say, for if you want more insight on the themes of this movie, seek out... Uh, those black uh, black activists, black movie critics, black you know other black people that have been affected by the themes in this movie, and hear them out um, to get a better understanding of what you know of the importance of this movie. But otherwise, yeah, 
this is this definitely you know top tier 2018. The the, the end of 2018 is becoming uh, more and more um, rich in just wonderful movies, and I'm beginning to worry how many of the movies that I already have on my list are going to survive by the end of the year because. The next two months are going to be just loaded with all of the best that Hollywood has to offer in terms of, like, drama and spectacle. So, we'll have to wait and see how, where this where this ends up by the end of the year. But it's highly recommendable. It's one of my favorite movies, not only of this year, but of this decade. I can't recommend you see this enough. You think it's them? Yes. We're going to have to fight. Is your gun loaded? Eventually, you're gonna get us killed. You're forgetting something. We are the sisters, brothers. We're good at what we do. Charlie! Get away! Get away! Get away! Get away! Are you upset? I'm leaving. What's wrong with you? You hit me in public, Charlie. So I slap you, you slap me back. Raven, so bad. Hit me. Hit me. Jesus Christ! What is your goddamn problem? Last of the new releases, uh, I was able to see this one um, thanks to one of my local Cinemark theaters. It's local next town over, technically, but I was still able to see it, and that is The Sisters Brothers. I was mentioning it, I think I mentioned it on my uh, preview for the fall, and... Yeah, it's based on a book by Patrick DeWitt, which, according to some critics, felt like it was basically a spec script for a movie at points, which makes sense. That's how a lot of books tend to get published nowadays, is spec scripts to get a movie deal. I mean, hell, that's Mark Millar's entire business model for comics. And um, this is the first English-language film of French writer-director Jacques Audiard. Um, I'm not familiar with his French-language work, but um, he's been in it. He's been at it for decades. So the fact that he's only now getting into uh, English language film is interesting. And I gotta say, he did. He did. He he was able to traverse nicely into English. Um, I have to check out his French stuff. Um, for those who may not be familiar and are interested in the other stuff that he has done, let me pull him up real quick. There he is. Uh, the first one that comes up is. Um, Crap, I don't want to butcher this. Uh, Rust and Bone. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to butcher the French. Uh, but yeah, he so, so it's 2012's Rust and Bone. His last movie he helped write on was Deepon, um, which was a winner for uh, uh, Khan's uh, Palme d'Or, uh, which is about a Sri Lankan Tamil warrior who flees to France. And uh, he you know, co-wrote and directed that. And, um, yeah, it deals mainly, mainly with a minority group, uh, even stars, uh, Sri Lankan, um, na- I don't know if they're native Sri Lankans or if they're Sri Lankan, um, French, uh, actors, but, uh, you know, they, I can't, I'm not even gonna bo- bother trying to butcher their names either, but check them out, uh, D-H-E-E-P-A-N, Deepan, uh, that was last, that was two years ago, 2016, and... Yeah, A Prophet in 2009, The Beat That My Heart's... I'm saying these um, 
for the English language version of these because, once again, I do not wish to butcher the French. The French was not my language of um, of study, so I don't wish to... I know how it is. Like, I have a friend who uh, I went to college with, and he also... I mean, maybe we didn't go to college. Maybe it was right after me. He went to college with my friends. But suffice to say that he studied French, and he's an English speaker, and even he despises hearing people butcher French. I'm not going to bother. Uh, read my lips, the beat that my heart skipped, and a self-made hero, see how they fall. Um, but he has a lot of writing stuff as well, though. Uh, Dead Tired, Barjo, Australia, uh, 1989 Australia, not the 2012, um, what's his name? Uh... Boslerman movie, uh, Baxter, Frequent Death, Saxo. So, I mean, this guy has worked all going back all the way, all the way to the 70s uh, and mainly through the 80s and 80s through today. So Jacques Audiard um, is, is a very, I'm, I'm sure people who are more familiar with French cinema and modern French cinema can tell you more about him, but I'm interested to see his other, his other work because he definitely piqued my interest with this. Um, this adaptation is basically a dark com- comedic western. It's a western first. It's not a comedy a la Blazing Saddles or anything of, the, of that nature. It's not a comedy, but it's more of a light, it's more of a western that doesn't take itself too seriously. It's willing to swear and doesn't shy away from the darker elements of life in the 1800s. So yeah, take, keep that in mind because that's the other thing too. Not only does not only is it about like guys talking crap to each other, but like people lose limbs and there's all kinds of just nasty viol- violence and bloody bloodiness and gore and viscera all over the place. It is not shy away. I mean, it doesn't out it doesn't revel in it, but it doesn't shy away from it, which is a it, which is a good touch. The fact that it's more like yeah, this this time this point in time. It was kind of nasty when you think about it. Uh, the movie stars John C. Riley, who was a co-producer, and River... Not River Phoenix. He's the... His brother, Joaquin Phoenix. Not sure why I made that slip. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, John C. Riley and uh, Joaquin Phoenix play the sisters' brothers, uh, Eli and Charlie. And Charlie, Joaquin Phoenix, is a drunkard. And a violent reprobate, whereas uh, Eli is more sentimental and and focused on returning home to be with this woman who gave him a uh, shawl. Like, there's even a we- weird, almost disturbing scene of him essentially trying to pay a hooker to be to recreate the scene of him receiving the shawl from this girl as a way to be like as a, as like a sec as like it's like a role playing thing. It's it's bizarre. And it's kind of creepy when you think about it, but right, but yeah, the way it's played out is kind of almost touching in a way, touching in a twisted way. Um, but yeah, Riley is kind of the big brother, trying constantly taking care of his little brothers, getting himself into trouble. And they're hired; they're they're basically on the payroll of this guy named the Commodore, who is a major um, uh, crime lord, essentially. And they are. They are tasked with bringing in this chemist, played by Riz Ahmed, who is a who has discovered a formula to locate gold within a river 
in order to save time and energy panhandling and digging through uh, the riverbed. It's a way to get gold faster. And Rizamed's character um, hopes to use that to found a essentially socialist utopia by the sound of it because it's it deals it does away with the capitalist ideas of greed and uh reliance on gold and money and focuses more on human interactions almost kind of communist in a sense more than socialist and Riza Med hopes to found this community in Texas once he gets enough gold to start it off with and then uh, Jake Gyllenhaal was hired by the Commodore as well to track him down. And so he just gets roped into the scheme. And Gyllenhaal, Gyllenhaal's really good, guys. I mean, you forget how good Jake Gyllenhaal is in movies. And here he is playing this um, really, really well-educated journalist who has be- essentially become a tracker f- and, like, private investigator for this gang, for this crime lord. And when he hears um, Riz Ahmed's plan, he's like, I mean, I can't say I'm not interested, so why not? And kind of betrays the Commodore in order to, in order to follow in this guy's uh, footsteps and, and see where this dream takes him. And it's an interesting, I, I, I liked the movie. It's not one of my favorite Westerns, but I am glad that I saw it. It's, it's got some. It's got some great one-liners, especially from Phoenix and Riley. Uh, the way they interact with each other, the way they kind of—they're like, they're like almost supernaturally good as hitmen and as gunfighters, and yet they and so they manage to survive a lot of of spats and brawls and whatnot. And but they're always bickering with each other, and they're so dysfunctional because they're and they reveal that because of their abusive father and whatnot. And it's really interesting stuff there. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure why I don't love this more. I think it's just because it's a bit dry and maybe if it were more cinematic, I would be into it. But given, um, I'm guessing Odiot style is more down to earth and like dist and, and sort of distant. And I think that's probably why the movie is the way it is. At any rate, I liked it. I this was a really good weekend, you guys. Between between the hate you give being the pick of the week, and the and this and the Halloween sequel remake remake wall. Um, I think that's what I'll call uh, sequel boot reboot call. Let's call it that a reboot call. And and yeah, the, like then this movie, the fact that so much good came out this week, and this wasn't even. A wide release this weekend. This was just like a little a, a a boost in limited release movies. Like this is just a little indie movie that's that's getting some play, and it's good. Like the stuff I saw this weekend was all recommendable, and I, I can't remember the last time that that I had three movies a weekend and they were all recommendable. Like there wasn't a single one that I was like, nah, skip this. Like every single one I liked at least. Like, everything I gave, um, three and a half, four star for Halloween, four out of five for Sisters Brothers, five out of five for The Hate You Give. This was a good week for movies. So, so, so enjoy, enjoy the new releases, guys, because they're pretty good. Um, now let's talk about something that isn't quite so good in our Netflix and chat. 
Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. If you've been following um, my sister podcast, uh, Maji Day with Mike Palace, which we did, we're able to record a, we're getting some new recordings up. And ready, so Mike should be premiering the second season of Maj Day pretty soon. So keep your ears open for that. Once Ma- once Mike announces it, I'll be sure to share it on this podcast as well. Um, but yeah, if you've been following that podcast, if you go back and listen, one of my episodes was about the Netflix anime Seven Deadly Sins, and you basically hear Mike help me realize that this anime is trash. And I watched season three, which uh, the way it breaks down is uh, season one is, I think, like 26 episodes, standard season length. Season two is like four episodes, which is really odd. It's almost like an OVA that was broken down into episodes. And then season three is another 24 episode season. It's It's a regular season length. And... I think Mike helped me to realize why this anime is bad. And I could not... And everything that was bad about it that he pointed out to me is made worse in this season. Uh, Basically, the premise is, for those who haven't watched it, it's a shonen-style anime set in Arthurian Britain, like medieval Britain. And in in this magical time where giants and fairies and demons and goddesses exist... There's a lot of religious iconography as well, specifically Christian Christian iconography being utilized. I mean, their names are derived from the Catholic uh, term as the sort of antithesis to the seven, I think, graces, something like that, seven uh, whatever or another. Uh, but yeah, the seven deadly sins being uh, sloth, avarice, wrath, envy, pride, lust, and... What was the other one? There's always one I always forget. Uh, Rat. Let's go in order from the anime. Uh, Wrath, who's the leader. Uh, Envy, who is the giant. Sloth, who's the fairy. Greed, who is the human. This human who is gifted with like Wolverine-style Deadpool powers of regeneration. Um, crap, I've already... <laughs> Um, Lust, who is a, a doll who's given sentience, as they established by this point. Um, ah, what did, they they include Merlin, who is a sexy woman who looks like she's ready for a fi- who's like who's like somebody's Final Fantasy character or something. You know, so she looks like a Square Enix character the way she's dressed. Um, but I forget what Merlin is. Um, and then lastly, Pride. Hold on. No, this is gonna bug me. Cardinal sins, yeah. Uh, pride, greed, lust, envy, glu- gluttony. Why did I forget gluttony? Um. So yeah. Um. Wait. Oh no, he was the sin of gluttony, not greed. She was the sin of greed. Um, so yeah, uh, 
basically the idea is that these seven magical warriors, one of them being Merlin from Arthurian lore, uh, become these holy knights for this king for this fictional kingdom in Britannia, and they are accused of crime of crimes that they didn't commit where they were uh, tagged with these uh, you know these titles: sin of wrath, sin of pride, sin of sloth, sin of envy, sin of lust, sin of greed. And it doesn't matter after a certain point because they're just titled with these with the with the seven deadly sins. And then in season three introduces their antithesis, these demon lords called the Ten Commandments. Except whereas the seven deadly sins actually had backstories that tied into their titles, the Ten Commandments literally have no correlation with the biblical um, law set. It's literally just Ten Commandments because Christian. I don't know. It doesn't matter. And what it essentially becomes is every trashy shonen anime trope that you can think of. I would love to see. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure if he does. I think uh, Sage uh, Bennett the Sage Bennett does. Um, does movies more so than series but i would love to see him just tear this series apart now because i can't thanks mike thanks mike for making me not be i mean that's probably a good idea that way mike can introduce me to good anime for a change but you know sometimes you just need your trash unfortunately now the trash is so bad that even i can't enjoy it because I'll admit, part of the reason why I love that it was I'm a, I have a fascination with size differences. That was part of the reason I liked Smallfoot for what for for a little, for at least parts of it. It was the differentiation. I love how people play around with size differences. It's a it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating trope, and I'm always curious to see how that's handled. And here it's 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 kind of lazy. It doesn't really do much of anything. Like, especially in this uh, season. This season, that tries to continue the story, introdu- finally introduces the seventh sin, who is a guy, who is another human, but who is gifted with the power to gain, Im- gain immense strength during the sun, when he's exposed to sunlight, and then remains weak while he is in moonlight. And it also ties into his, uh, his own pride, his own, you know, arrogance, in a way. Um, but yeah, it's it's all stupid, and like this movie, this season adds a entirely super. Like, here's the thing: if you're if you ever watched um Dragon Ball Z, you'll remember that power levels are bullcrap; they're nonsense. And yet, this season of Seven Deadly Sins hinges entirely on people spouting power levels. Like, literally, the kid, the pig sidekick character that travels around with these with our protagonists is given the ability to see power levels and we're supposed to give a damn what these power levels are and every time it diverged from what was going on to spout nonsense about these power levels all i could think was it's over 9000 and it and realizing that power levels are stupid and pointless <laughs> and Yet this this sh- series takes them entirely, literally, and seriously, and they're important plot points to consider. 
Oh, yeah, this this anime went from fun trash to bad trash. It really all of the stuff that I enjoyed about season one, the sort of fanciful nature of this fantasy world, and the sort of weird like action adventure elements. It was ramped up to an absurd level. Like everybody, like once again, that's the other thing. It's shown in trash in the sense that everyone shouts their power attacks, but they don't mean anything. They just exist because it's a trashy shonen anime. And here, it's like, like, what, like, what does it matter if you call out your attack? It's, it's, it's something that. That's something that makes sense in, like, Dragon Ball Z, in, uh... Like, it doesn't necessarily make sense in Yu-Gi-Oh!, but the idea is that this card has an attack that it delivers, and it's always the same attack every time. And in Dragon Ball Z, it's established that your your name is given to this attack. The the Kamehameha Wave, the Gallic Gun, the Spirit Bomb. So calling it out is something you do as you're... you're, uh, You're almost calling upon it and delivering that attack. Whereas there's no need to shout, you know, it's not, they don't establish that it's like Harry Potter where you're shouting the command, like the magic word in order to activate the spell. It's just shonen anime loves to shout attacks at everybody, so let's do that. It doesn't make any damn sense. And, and of course, like, both, se- both long-form seasons, I think even the season two where it was like four episodes, every season has a fighting tournament! As though you can't have a shonen anime that doesn't have a fighting tournament. Is this like an unwritten rule or something? Or is it just lazy shonen writers have be like, yeah, uh, we got nothing better to do. Uh, we need to pad out some issues and some runtime in the season before we can continue on with the story. Oh, uh, let's throw in a net. Let's throw in a uh, tournament arc because sure, why not? And hell, even the tournament arc in this season doesn't amount to anything. It's a diversion. It doesn't make any damn sense. (sighs) So this season finally killed whatever interest I had in the Seven Deadly Sins anime. What was sort of trashy admire, you know, trashy admirability or whatever you want to call it. This sort of admirable trashiness that was the season one to boring season two, to downright ludicrous season three that doesn't make any damn sense at all. It It's so bad. And at this point, I can't even recommend you watch it. You hate and watch it. Like, it's not even worthy of watching because it's so bad. It's good. The first season is almost so bad it's good at points. The th- second and third seasons are just boring, unwatchable garbage. And I'm sure uh, Mike will be happy to hear that I've finally given up on that AMA. Anyway, uh, that's all the stuff I watched this past week, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we return we're going to be talking about essentially what I introduced in the Hate You Give uh, review. You. You out there. You know what horror is? You like horror films. You like gore. You want to hear four badass women discuss and dissect modern and classic horror films. Join us at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, a good ghoul's guide to horror. Oh! On the Gummy Cat Network. Don't read the Latin. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you know that in the world of the insane you will find a kind of truth more terrifying than fiction? in the the hate you give review I this this whole discussion is going to be about how to address issues that pertain to minority groups and people outside of your demographics how do because that's that's the other thing too is that here's how it breaks down I am a cisgender heterosexual white male who identifies as a leftist and is an atheist. That's kind of how my demographics break down. So, not only is it an issue when I discuss movies that pertain to issues of... and this is the, Oh, the other thing I was probably I'd be lower middle class. Not fully lower class, lower middle class. And that's mainly because my parents are middle, strictly middle class. So, they are able to keep me from being purely lower class. So, that's kind of where my demographics break down. And when it comes to talking about subjects outside of my... Oh, and of course the other one. Um, I suffer from depression and I am on the autism spectrum. So, those... <laughs> The only real minority group I can I, I can assert uh, you know assert any sort of connection to is the is people suffering from mental health and even then that's not how much of that is a minority group at this point because I think at this point most everybody suffers in some form or another from some issue pertaining to mental health but suffice to say that I'm part of a community that I am part of a community that is not. A, a predominant or a or a prominent figure, you know, prominent community within society, but the, but it's a very very small group, and it's nowhere near as as um I'm not sure what the term I should use for it is, but it's nowhere near as envel you know all enveloping and. Uh, encompassing as a racial makeup, uh, a sexual or gender identity sort of thing. It's more of a, it's more of a matter of fact sort of clinical diagnosis that 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 allows that has me be a part of a certain subset of those of somebody of a group within the mental health community, and that's really the only group I quote unquote belong to. It's the only one I can really assert any sort of authority uh, when, I'm, when, it, when I'm discussing it. And everything else, the only aside from that, being a former member of the Catholic Church, that's the only other one I can really assert any sort of authority in discussing. And this, and so this, this discussion is sort of my approach to topics that are outside of my authority to speak on. And you heard how I tackled it with the hate you give, but here's 
here's kind of my mindset when approaching these sorts of themes. And that's the thing. Th this pertains mainly to themes in the writing and and sort of ideals that are portrayed within the subtext or even the text. You know, think you know. Sometimes it's within the subtext, and sometimes it, it's actually the what like with the hate you give. That's clearly the text. There is no real subtext to that. It's, everything is written in the text. Uh, Christ exploitation movies, evangelical Christian movies, those are the text. It's when you get into things like Moonlight and um, and um, Black Panther, where those ideas and those um, themes are part of the subtext, not overtly the text. And when it comes to those sorts of things, I am an outsider. When I'm an outsider, my main um, my main uh, action is to defer to those who are more have more authority to speak on the topic. So, like I mentioned in the hate you give, when it comes to issues dealing with the black community, I defer to members of the black community, um, whether it's uh, other reviewers or people who are more prominent figures within the black community, uh, organizations that are, that are, that were created and, and, um, work in, it worked, work, um, for the black community. Those are the people who I would defer to when it can when it comes to the authority to speak on the topics covered in the hate you give. I merely commented on them as an outsider viewing them through the purview of a work of a work of film. That's all. I do not wish to make it sound like I have any authority to speak on the themes and the topics covered in the hate you give because that's clearly not within my wheelhouse. It's not what I'm. Well, I have no authority to speak on those topics, obviously. But I'll, but at the same time, one of my if you've noticed, one of my biggest issues with things like the latest Dinesh D'Souza movie and the very evangelically Christian-centric sort of movies that come from pure flicks that I've dubbed Christ-exploitation is when it's a theme that is outside of my, my worldview, my, 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 my community, as it were, I, if it's something that pertains to something I aim in, in direct opposition towards, I can, I can come off as a bit combative. And... I think that's something I just need to work towards. And unfortunately, whenever those things come up, th there were still guys just going at this, continuing the discussion on Dinesh D'Souza months after the movie came out in theaters on my Instagram. I eventually just turned off the comments for that post. And I'll probably do it for, there's going to be another one this coming week that I'm going to have to do that towards because... I'll avoid hashtags as well because I think that's problem. The problem was people found it through the hashtag, so I think I'll drop the hashtag for at that time because I don't. I don't need. I don't have the mental capacity and the and the emotional fortitude to continue those arguments. I, I'm just a movie reviewer, man. Like, like maybe do it with my personal account or something, but I don't need to hear your garbage. I was at a comedy show uh, last night after as of this recording. It would have been Saturday the 20th of October, 2018. And while we, one of the things that happened there twice was a woman who admittedly came to her first comedy show 
would not shut up when certain topics came up, specifically weed and specifically gun control. And she would interrupt the flow of the jokes and completely disrupt the comedy set in order to argue with the comedian as though it were a conversation and not entertainment. And that's just terrible form. That just literally you you don't do that. With, you don't you don't uh, go. You don't sit through a performance of a streetcar named Desire and yell at Stanley's. Uh, I was almost going to say Spadowski, but that's from UHF. You don't stand there and yell Stanley Kowalski and, and tell him, dude, quit harassing Stella. You're an asshole. You don't do that. So why is it okay for you to do it to comedians? They're, they're doing the same thing. They're giving a performance. They're not there to have a conversation. If they want to talk to you, they'll talk to you. Otherwise, keep your damn mouth shut. This has been a comedy show etiquette with, with John the Popcorn Junkie. Um... But yeah, just I don't I don't have the emotional strength to deal with these de- deal with these people. I'm not I'm not here for you to argue with. I don't owe you a debate, and I will not use my platform to allow you to debate me on something. This is a movie review show. You want to debate? Find somebody who wants to debate. Don't demand me deba- that I debate you. When all I'm doing is just commenting on movies. I'm not here to debate you. I'm here to share my opinion. You can share yours as well, but I'm not gonna continue I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna continue a debate on the merits of of David A. R. White's movies and the liberal media and Dinesh D'Souza's nonsense propaganda. Like, I'm done with that. I can't anymore. I don't have the will. To continue with that nonsense. I can't. So yeah. But but I do want to try and keep. A fairly objective point of view. When I'm when I'm critiquing these. I mean ideally. The reason why I use favorite and least favorite. When it comes to the my year end lists. Is because it's ultimately subjective. But there are some objective things. I can always critique. As an outsider, like when I'm an outsider, the most I can talk about are the objective qualities. Namely that, you know, exploitation movies tend to be poorly made, whereas the hate you give, things like the hate you give and sorry to bother you are more well made and on, sorry to bother you's case, almost artistic in their uh, creative process. So those are the parts I can focus on. When it comes to the themes and motifs, I speak as somebody who does not, who is not, who is not a an authority on that subject. Um, I cannot speak as somebody who is a Christian, who is conservative, who is black, who is gay, who is trans, who is, you know, any of these. The only thing I can speak to with authority on are issues dealing with autism, depression, and Pokemon. (laughs) That's literally all I can talk about with any sort of authority. And dinosaurs for the most part. Dinosaurs, I'm very... uh, very well versed in, uh, but no, specifically as a member of a of certain subsets of society, the only things I can really speak on are nerdy subcultures and you know nerd and nerd culture as in and of itself, which has sadly become corporate culture in a sense because we all tie ourselves to corporate entities and intellectual properties instead of literally instead of I mean, 
what would be what's we I mean what's weirder when you think about it tying yourself to an intellectual property created by somebody or tying yourself to a religious text that you can't verify the verify anything about it's just I mean it's ultimately just it could just as be it could be just as fictional as Marvel Comics or My Little Pony so yeah which is I think the idea is that you don't want to subvert so you don't want to you know embrace wholly a culture that has no real bearing and has no real truth to it you know you don't want to embrace you don't want to become a part of a, a subset of a culture that essentially is created also to sell sell merchandise that's kind of the other problem with nerd culture is that it became less about enjoying these properties and becoming essentially cheerleaders for corporate entities but that's a discussion for another day Suffice to say that I'm not an authority when it comes to issues dealing with my, certain minority groups and even certain other groups, like d- issues dealing with religion. With religion, is, I mean, I can speak on Catholicism. I was raised uh, 18 years of my life and even went on to my 20, to my 20s practicing Catholicism. And even now, I'll assist uh, my mom's Catholic church in, perform- in, perform- in performances for their uh, Christmas and Easter choir. So... I can speak with some authority on that, but when, uh, but otherwise, I can't. You know, I'm not speaking on authority. I'm speaking from the point of view of an atheist when I'm covering Christian movies, and I'm speaking from the point of view of a white outsider when it comes to issue when movies dealing with black, with black culture and even Asian culture, or you know, Hispanic culture or whatever sort of like when I. Like I brought this up with uh, Wind River last year, the fact that I was concerned about the lack of. The fact that it should have been a indigenous actor to play the lead instead of Jeremy Renner. And that should have focused more on the indigenous people, not the white outsiders. I'm speaking on that point. I'm speaking on that issue as an outsider myself. I would much rather the point of view be from the indigenous people, not the white outsiders. I don't need Tom Cruise to tell me a story about ancient Japan. Or Matt Damon to tell me a story about ancient China, although that one is that one isn't so much Hollywood as actual Chinese filmmakers saying no, we would like to have Matt Damon in our movie. It means we're legit. So that one's not that one's just as much the Chinese film uh, filmmakers and the film producers being like, oh no, we absolutely would want a white guy in this movie. It means we're legit. If we're working with a Hollywood actor, that means we're big time. I mean, that's at least what I heard. Uh, I can only go off of what I've read. Uh, but even so, like the fact that we don't need the outsider's point of view for these kinds of things, for these kinds of stories. I mean, it's sometimes it helps to have an avatar for the audience, but that's, but that mainly is for things like Harry Potter or, um, or like Frodo with the Lord of the Rings. He was, he was in the Shire. So he shot Luke in Star Wars. He's the outsider learning about this wider world around him. He is the avatar for us, the audience. We don't need the avatar for white people to understand this culture. We can understand, we, all we have to do is have an avatar character for us to understand. And then we can see the culture around them as it happens, you know? So... Yeah, when I speak of those issues, I'm speaking as a fellow outsider. I'm speaking as, as an outsider myself, but as an outsider, my issue is I would much rather hear from those who are members of that community rather than have some token white character sit there and and you know it's it, it's not it, to not deal with um to take it away from specifically race. 
if you've ever seen The Great Escape, there's there's something you know. There's basically an inch. There's a, a, something you notice when you watch the American release versus the original British release. Basically, the American release added scenes of Steve McQueen, and he's clearly in a separate room every single time they cut to him. And he is so forcibly pushed in. It's the same thing with, like, uh, Raymond Burr in Godzilla, King of the Monsters. And it's so out of place and jarring. And it's only there because apparently people speaking with a funny accent wouldn't sell well in America. They keep saying that, and there's no guarantee or whether or not it's true, because all because the, they never exactly put that much effort into selling it. And hell, Crazy Rich Asians with Black Panther proven, has proven that it doesn't matter even if they speak the same language. You know, as long as they speak the same language, it ultimately doesn't matter. People will still see the damn thing if they like it. So it doesn't matter what language they're speaking or what accent they speak it with, or if they speak English with an accent. Who cares? Your argument that it ha- there has to be white people in the movie or else white people won't see it is garbage now. Black Panther proved it. Crazy Rich Asians proved it. Get Out even proved it. Like, the only white people in there were the bad, bad, were the bad guys. And people still saw it in droves. So the, your argument has been disproven. Stop trying to make it. Uh, at any yeah, um, At any rate... Uh, I'm kind of getting off topic, but as somebody uh, I, like I, like I mentioned, the whole my whole impetus as an outsider speaking on these t- themes and of these topics is to ultimately try and present what the creator, what the filmmakers wanted me wanted you to see. The, my biggest issue, as you've probably noticed, is when it comes to themes and ideas that I'm in opposition to. The ideas of the corporate culture and the greedy sort of uh, Gordon Gecko style, like Reagan era capitalism, and you know, very dogmatic religious ideas. You know, the stuff you see in Pure Flix movies, like even like even if it weren't, even if Pure Flix movies were made by people who knew how to make good movies, the themes aren't compelling. Like, the stories they're trying to tell aren't good stories. Like, I bring this up a lot. Uh, I bring this up a lot, uh, you know, when it comes to religious stuff. And that's that I don't hate religious movies, period. I like Prince of Egypt. I think it's, you know, I think it's the best. I mean, it's the most compelling uh, version of the story from Exodus. Even though the story from Exodus is complete garbage when you actually read the Bible. Um, but they made it compelling and enriching and spectacular. So, I mean, I can't deny that. The filmmakers did a good job. Uh, Philomena and Doubt both deal with themes of, uh, you know, uh, crises of faith and, uh, and issues dealing with corruption within your institution and whether or not that should, that should, that should compel you to leave or not. And what, how to deal with the, with that corruption and with those darker elements of your of your faith? Good movies can be made about faith. They tend not to come from people whose only point is to essentially preach a sermon to the people who are already in church. And that's my key issue: is that when you're basically preaching a sermon to the congregants 
and not trying to tell a tell a story and be a compelling movie, I don't care. Like I could care less about the about you know your whatever your false martyrdom about your being persecuted for your beliefs when you're still the dominant for religious force in the country like christianity is still the dominant religion in the country most americans still identify as christians and they still let and the the, what kills me is what for the people who act like they're the persecuted ones they hold the highest offices in the land and yet they still there are still people who act like they're persecuted because people aren't willing to put up with their more archaic and dogmatic beliefs and people would what and people don't wish that religious doctrine serve as the basis for secular society like the fact that there that's the issue and that that's your correlation to prejudice is is it's it just out from an out like that's the thing there is actually there may be actual prejudice that that deals with uh i mean i'm prejudiced towards christians mainly because i've seen them i've seen people who identify as christians be some of the worst people i could imagine and that's I would much I don't want to associate with them and I don't want to have those arguments. I don't want to deal I don't want to have to, you know, debate the existence of a of, a, of people who were in a book that just because it was written oh this uh, the Odyssey was written a long time ago too. Doesn't mean we tell, hold that together as fact. I guess that's my, you know, it's 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 Kind of, you know, it's part of the reason why I became, I eventually became atheist. I was agnostic for years since college, and eventually I started listening to fellow athe to other atheists, and it became made me realize that no, I don't, I, I, I can't buy into any of this, and that's why I'm much more skeptical when it comes when I'm dealing with people who already have a religious agenda in mind. That's why I don't take pure flicks or affirm films or any of those kinds of religious films seriously initially unless it's coming from a much more mainstream studio if it's coming from an independent studio with a name that ties into faith then i don't take you seriously because uh from what because from my past experiences you're not trying to make a real movie you're trying to make some you're trying to make a sermon you're making a sermon to so to you're making a sermon that's that you expect people to pay to see you know that's what kills me is that these are sermon these are essentially sermons you could probably get for free at church on sunday and yet they expect you to pay 10 bucks a head to go see it that's what i don't get and unfortunately there are there's such a drive from because that's the thing it's kind of cheating because churches will bust their congregants to the theater and that kind of that kind of you know falsifies the numbers it's not like people are going out of their way to see it it's people you relying on the church to take them to see a movie it doesn't it's not people going of their not really people going of their own volition it's like a field trip you know it's like it's like busing kids to see it's like busing kids to see coco like if kids were being bussed from school to see coco people would question the numbers and i think that's the that's kind of the problem with how with the real six like but it doesn't matter to movie studios because the money is money but it's a it's a you know it's a 
trumped up number. It's a number that's been inflated by you know coercive by, by subversive means. They're not trying to. They're not trying. You know, they're all they're doing is making sure that the movie makes money, and it's almost kind of insidious in a way. But that's an whole other thing. Yeah, I mean, I could go on about that part of things, but it ultimately comes down to the fact that as an outsider for that for those movies. I need to always. I need to keep the same mindset when I tackle a movie like *The Hate You Give*. Crazy Rich Asians love Simon. When I'm dealing with a culture, a community that is outside of my of of my own, I need to keep that in mind. And the main focus still needs to be the objective points, the technical aspect of the film, and that's how. I maintain some semblance of integrity by focusing on the objective and then treating the more subjective um, critiques of the themes and of the storyline and of the more artistic aspect of the movie. That's how I and that's how I, that's how I imagine ending up more and more on the right side of things because I would much rather be seen as somebody who is willing to get willing to view things as they are rather than uh you know completely be uh biased in when it comes to, when it comes to one certain like as much as i as much as i am biased to those things just because of my own exposure to what 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 to their to the other stuff that like pure Flix has made and david r white has produced and Dinesh D'Souza has made like the fact that I have more exposure to those things than a lot of people has kind of colored my worldview on them and kind of made me biased towards them. But I think it's the matter of I need to be aware of those movies and my and ensure that my critique is for, is is upfront objective, and then as I break down the themes and the subjective matter to ensure that people understand that I'm approaching some of these things as an outsider. These aren't to be taken with the utmost authority. And I think that's kind of the main takeaway from this is that unless it's dealing with aspects of mental health specific and specifically the autism spectrum and depression, I'm not an authority figure. I'm coming at this from an outsider a lot of the time and I'm only approaching and I'm doing so with with hopefully the best of intentions. So with that so with that being said, I think we should get on to more lighter fare. Let's move on to take a look at the box office report. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. Once again, normally this is where the Patreon corner would go, but I'm holding off on those until I can get some more numbers on the Patreon. That Patreon is patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. And if you want access to the previous 10 Munch Along and Mega Better Movies, and you want early access to episodes, and also want to help you know, produce content by suggesting stuff for me to review, you can do so by donating as little as a dollar a month to patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. And you'll also be thanked at the end of every episode and whatever the content is from here on out. So if you want to help create the con- help create content yourself by suggesting stuff for me to cover, 
and you also want to help see this podcast flourish and thrive, you can do so by uh, supporting me through patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. So, with that being said, let's take a look at this box office report. Hold on, this is still showing me last week's for some reason. Here we go. That was weird. Anyway, let's take a look at some of our losers this week. Uh... House on the Clock on the Walls dropped out of the top ten entirely. We saw an increase from The Old Man and the Gun. Uh, Bad Times of the Yellow Royale dropped out uh, from number seven to number nine. And Night School dropped out from number six to number eight. So we're done talking about them. So so staying at number seven. Well, staying here in the top seven, we've got Smallfoot, which brought in $6.6 million this weekend bringing its domestic gross up to $66 million and its foreign gro- and combined with the foreign gross, $137 million. Not a runaway success. It basically made Bad Creeps budget. I doubt that we're going to see any more from this franchise uh, anytime soon, unless it does really well on DVD or something. Uh, no- next up, jumping up from number nine to number six is The Hate You Give, which brought in $7.5 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross all the way up to $10 million. It, you know, it's not doing too well. I'm hoping that word of mouth and then maybe an award season push will help this out. I, it didn't help that it, it came out on the heels of a juggernaut like Halloween. So hopefully it cost $23 million to make. It has barely made back half of that. So hopefully you can see some more success down the line. But it, that maybe they're pushing for more uh, critical success than straight up box office success. Dropping down from number three to number five is First Man, which brought in $8.5 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $29.9 million, and a worldwide gross of, after two weeks of $55 million. So after two weeks, it's only barely scraping away at its budget. So this is not doing too hot for Damien Chazelle. I think, it's, I think people were just not into seeing another... Uh, seeing the Neil Armstrong story, and I think word of mouth has kind of gotten around that this isn't exactly a movie you need to see in theaters. So I'm fully expecting this to drop even further out of the top ten within the next couple of weeks, by November at least. Uh, Staying at number four uh, this weekend is Goosebumps 2 Haunted Halloween, which brought in $9.7 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $28 million, and its worldwide gross up to 39 almost $40 million. So it's managed to make back its budget. Uh, I don't know if this is doing well enough. I don't think this is doing the numbers at once in order to continue the franchise, but we'll wait and see. Maybe this will be like every couple of years, Sony does a Goosebumps movie for Halloween. Who knows? Dropping down from number one to number three is Venom which made $18.1 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $171 million and its worldwide gross up to $461 million. Thanks, world. You really helped. You really did a number on Venom. You made sure that we're going to get plenty of more trash from Sony. Unless Disney does something to step in, and even then, is that the right thing to do? I don't get you people. Sometimes I really don't get you people. Staying at number two this weekend um, with $19.3 million is A Star is Born, which brought in $126 million with, um, 
which brought in, as I mentioned, $19.3 million, bringing its domestic gross up to $126 million, and its worldwide gross after three weeks of uh, up to $200 million, 201 specifically. So this is this is a this is a breakout success for Bradley Cooper uh, for his f- debut movie to open with two hundred mil- to, to to have a three week run of two hundred million dollars. That's that's a wonderful news for him. So even though he's not number one at the box office, it still it manages to st- like that's the thing. Your movie never never has to top the box office. It just has to stick around. And the fact that it's managed to stay at number two for weeks on end and rake in two hundred million dollars on a thirty six million dollar budget, that's 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 a great sign for Bradley Cooper. And it's I still say it's the definitive version of the story. So good on you, Star is Born. You did good. And premiering at number one this week is Halloween, which brought in $77.5 million its opening weekend. And with an extra boost from the foreign markets, its opening weekend gross is $91.8 million. That is insane. And its budget is 10. Blumhouse knows exactly how to handle the horror franchise. So it's... I mean, looking at the numbers right now, uh, adjusted for inflation, it's premiered at number four behind the original Halloween, Halloween 2, um, the original Halloween 2, not the Rob Zombie one, and Halloween H2O. Halloween H2O is the second highest grossing after the original Halloween. And opening, and as for opening weekends, it seems to be the highest out of all of them. I can't say about adjusted for inflation, how those are. Uh, here we go, opening weekends. And it's an invalid chart ID. Thanks, oh, Box Office Mojo, you're a real help. But yeah, uh, concurrently, uh, unadjusted for inflation, Halloween 2018 is the highest grossing of all of the movies. And when you ad- even when you adjust for inflation, it's number four between the first two movies and H2O. So it's already premiered higher its opening weekend has done better than both of the Rob Zombie versions. That's that's amazing. So congratulations, Blumhouse. You did a good. You did amazing. You premiered at number one for the most part, and you and you, that just means you have the license to print all kinds of new stuff for Halloween. And hey, maybe other four franchises will see your success. And bring and bring them to you. Who knows what we'll the wait and see? But I'm not surprised, and you know I'm not. I can't say it doesn't deserve it because it, it it was a perfectly good horror movie and it gave people exactly what they wanted. Uh, sisters, and as um, a quick touch on uh, Sisters Brothers, jumped up a bit, but wasn't able to break the top ten, and is only brought in about two million dollars. I'm guessing it probably cost 10, maybe 20 million to make, so not exactly a great success. Hopefully, people are going to discover it down the line. But that was the box office report for the weekend, so let's take a look at uh, what's to come in Trailer Talk. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. As we lead into Halloween weekend, we don't exactly have too many other horror movies to come out. I think Halloween is going to dominate the Halloween season for 
uh, at the actual Halloween weekend. We've only got three new releases to come out in the next uh, in the next weekend, and none of them are horror movies, actually. Um, so yeah, let's take a look at the three new releases. First up, with Johnny English Strikes Again. I'm not sure I've ever met a man quite like you. You haven't. Jeez. Oh, baby. This. He's back. Why? We don't know. Good. And doing. Virtual reality. It's completely immersive, and some people lose track of their surroundings. That's not gonna happen. What he does best. Rowan Atkinson. Can I just ask, what is wrong with you? Did you or did you not burn the Côte du Roc restaurant to the ground? Um... And did you fire a missile at a peloton of French cyclists? Well... Before commandeering an open-top bus and tossing the tour guide off the top deck? Johnny English strikes again. I... I don't... I never understood the appeal of this movie series. So... I will. It's going to be interesting uh, to revisit the the whole lot of them to see what the appeal is as we head into the third one that seemed to come right the hell out of nowhere. So yeah, that's Johnny English Strikes Again. Hey, the big release for next weekend. And next up, the freaking the the freaking directed video. Das Boot Hunt for Red October movie that's somehow getting a wide release. Hunter Killer from Lionsgate. Let's take a look. Barents Sea, Russia. Hi, Common. You were actually in a good movie this week. Sir, we've got a shootout under the ice. I told Six Fleet you want a Hunter Killer. I gotta say that I've seen common in movies for the, like the last month between the hate you give and Smallfoot, and this is probably gonna be the worst thing he's actually in. Oh God! Oh God, that looks bad. We are witnessing the most aggressive military buildup in Russian history. We've been keeping tabs on the Russian president, his defense minister Durov. Oh my God! It's a coup. We're dealing with a single rogue minister. What if we could free President Zakharin? We rescue the Russian president. eyes and ears on the ground. Yeah, nothing quite like exposing the fact that you that you are spying on a sovereign nation to a degree that you could literally find out who 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 stole their president. My ship, because it was the right thing to do. This is about our future. From the producers of Fast and Furious. It's gonna be World War Three. And Olympus has fallen. And it's my job to keep you alive long enough so you can testify. Torpedoes in the water. Ship ready. Solution ready. Weapon ready. Five seconds, sir. Fire. Oh God, this movie is even dumber than I thought. But we might have still been the one. On October 26th. Battle stations. 
Gerard Butler, Gary Oldman, Common, Linda Cardellini. That's a warship. Ooh, cool subs don't look at explosions. Hunter Killer's gonna be a piece of crap. Oh, God. Oh, it's gonna be so bad. I don't get it. I don't get why why this exists. Why why am I seeing this in theaters when it obviously belongs in direct-to-video? Uh, I... Oh, well. Well, we're going to end the weekend off, Halloween weekend off with the most horrifying of movies, Christploitation. That's right. We got another one in the same vein as all of the Kirk Cameron movies about a army chaplain saving marriages. Because he's the real hero. All right. Uh, Indivisible. Let's take a look. Boom. Today, 3rd and 4th platoons are going to sweep our next door neighbors again. See if we can slow down the welcome gifts coming over the wall. Pure flicks. I'd like for you to have more non-combat experience first, but a military-wide shortage of chaplains. Military-wide shortage of chaplains. Gee, it's almost like your role is no bearing on the actual based on the powerful true story. You're gonna be okay. They can call it the family readiness group. Uh, the only, the only person of no- of a U.S. Army chaplain, the only person of note in this entire movie is one of the sister sister actresses. T- I think it's Tia Mallory. Really? Just let me mess with other people's lives, just part of your job description or something. I mean, kind of. Yeah, well, my marriage is none of your business. You don't know anything about me or my family. Dude has a point. There it is with two RPGs, sir. Get her down! Couldn't save the chaplain. So I guess do whatever it is you do. I just feel like there's something more that's happening between us. It's not between you two. It's between you two and that war. <laughs> oh, we got two on the rooftop. Get us out of here. Take them out. I trusted in God to protect those men. Ah. And he did. Gee, it's almost like he doesn't exist. What you thought he ought to do. Somehow have it in you to show up for those men when you refuse to do it for your own wife and kids. Those men need me. I need you. <laughs> I need to be in a better movie. One family. One marriage. <laughs> oh, this is gonna be bad. Called to serve. Have laid their snares along the path. They have set traps to catch me. Oh, he even performs a baptism under God. Amen. Where's the where the soldiers who are like, um, hello, I'm Sikh. I don't actually practice. Yeah, I'm Sikh. I'm Jewish. I'm actually agnostic. I'm Presbyterian. <laughs> like, like everyone's gonna be okay with like I don't know maybe 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 that's how it is in the military everyone just like assumes you're Christian and so the chaplain just does services for the entire platoon whether or not you're religious I don't know this whole thing sounds so so convoluted and stupid and and, and once again an excuse to pander to its audience it's once again a sermon meant to preach to the already converted 
So, yeah, that's going to be fun. Got to keep an open mind. Can't go in fully biased. Remember what you just said this episode, dude. Can't go in fully biased. Gotta have... Gotta have an open mind. Critique the movie objectively first. Then you can... Then you can ha- have your thoughts on the subjective aspects. Alright. So that's what Hollywood's giving us for Halloween weekend. No more horror movies. All my horror movies are going to be seen outside of the theaters for the Halloween spooktacular. So, yeah, great, joy. No Halloween movies in the theaters anymore. It's strictly going to be just nobody gave a damn. Just, all right, Halloween's obviously going to take the weekend again. So who cares? Let's just dump whatever we can to counter-program it. Oh, well. That about takes care of this week's content, which means it is time for the plugs. Once again, if you are listening to this podcast and you would like to support us financially and help provide uh, extra content for yourself and help create content for the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash popcornjunkie and donate as little as a dollar a month and you can be a content, help, help create the content for this show. Otherwise, you can if you're if you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at gummycatnetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, be sure to favorite the page and whitelist us on your ad blocker. And while you're there, check out all of the other fine podcasts. Uh, since we are heading into the spookiest time of the year, you can be sure to check out all of Donna's stuff at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods. It was almost about if if only we had if I had one more promo to air. Um, Next weekend would have been specifically perfect for Donna's Beyond the Cabin in the Woods. I might do it two weeks in a row just because. Um, It's just too perfect not to. Uh, At any rate, yeah, be sure to check out all that stuff. Majid is about to come back on. Uh, We're doing Living in the Stacks. You can also check out um, uh, Vanessa's stuff uh, dealing with her job at Las Vegas Oddities. And we are we we I we we're in a we've been a hit hit a bit of a snag, but tragic missile. Uh, do, we do want to continue that uh, eventually. It's just a matter of me getting off my lazy butt and doing stuff. Anyway, if you want to listen to this podcast on the go, you can do so by finding us on your various podcast providers. We're available through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Stitcher. And if they, if we aren't available for you, be sure to let us know, and we'll tr- make sure to add us to your po- to whatever the podcast provider of your choice. Um, I do know we're not available on SoundCloud. It just it's not a feasible for me to have the show up on there anymore. And I might look into Podbean as well. Maybe that is a, a extra Patreon sort of system. But for right now, uh, the main sources are iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, etc. So wherever you find your podcast, be sure to look for uh, look for Popcorn Junkie. And if you see my orange mug chomping on popcorn, staring at the movies, and you're we're well over the hundred episode mark, then you're you have the access to the right feed. And you know, be sure to let uh, favorite uh, not favorite uh, uh, be sure to you know subscribe and uh, give it a five star rating and review. Let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. And then if you want to keep up to date with us on social media, you can share uh, the episodes through your various social media platforms. Uh, our social media home is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. That's where all the major announcements are going to be. And you can also um, 
share direct episodes links through there. Uh, we're also vi- we're also on Twitter at Corn Junkie Pod, Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast. We're on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. You can also check out the fine folks at Double Toasted as well as um, Epic Voice Guy, the Internet's other John Bailey. He's the king of Stardust as far as I'm concerned. And find other uh, movie fans like yourself. And if you like, want, if you want to give your own reactions to movies, trailers, TV shows, you can do so by downloading the Stardust app today. And be sure to follow follow me over there at Popcorn Junkie to get previews of my thoughts on the upcoming releases for the week for the episode and anything else I'm co- I'm going to be covering. Um, and if there's anything else you want to say to me, if you had any kind of feedback or insight that you want to give about my discussion, your thoughts on Halloween, the Sisters Brothers, or the Hate You Give, uh, you know, criticisms, uh, corrections, if I made a mistake, please be sure to correct me at popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you want my your message read out on the mic, uh, let me know within the body of the message that I consent to, not consent, that's a bad way of phrasing it. Uh, but I agree to uh, having this bread on the on the on the podcast. Otherwise, I will only contact you privately. I do not wish to air your message without without your without your approval. So, and you know, but I would love to hear back from the audience, and it lets me know that you're listening and that you have your that you're willing to share in the conversation. So that about does it for this week's episode. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and we are getting ready for the spookiest time of the year. Too bad movie theaters didn't do the same. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. I eventually just turned off the comments for the post because I was sick of getting... Hi, Kitty. Hi, Mama. Thanks for interrupting the take. Thanks, Mama. You broke my train of thought. This whole time she was able to avoid interrupting me while I was, t- while I was recording and then the one, the one time she decides to barge in and make herself known while I'm recording. Hold on. Oh, damn it. I just realized that that's going to be the... That's actually the second sequel... That's actually the first sequel, Johnny English Reborn, that I'm watching. I was like, hey, Rosamund Pike's in this... Wait a second. Rosamund Pike isn't in the new one. Damn it! Uh, so, <laughs> we'll be right back. Uh, I'll get the actual trailer up and ready. That about does it for this episode of the Popcorn Junkie Podcast. Uh, all that's left is... um. Damn it! I've already forgotten how to how to lead into this part of the episode. It's been a week. It's been a week.